0: Welcome to Crisis Leadership Insights, a podcast produced for the University of Southern Queensland's Master of Business Administration. I'm Dr. Daniel Maddock, a digital pedagogy and media specialist and part of the MBA design team. In this podcast series, we talk to leaders from a variety of industries about how organizations can develop strategies to detect potential crises, manage those crises creatively and leverage what is learned through crises positively. These interviews were recorded via the internet, so please keep this in mind as you listen to this episode. Nia Yari Giyam, Jaganba na
1: Giyabu, Yarrawa peoples, Nia Toowoomba. This podcast is recorded on the traditional lands of the Giyabu and Yarrawa peoples in a place called Toowoomba.
0: Our guest for this episode is a trusted advisor, company spokesperson and creative thinker with a highly developed ability for solving problems quickly and effectively. Leonie van Dieven has 20 years experience in the volatile aviation industry. For nearly a decade, Leone led the corporate, media and crisis communications function for Australia's third busiest airport. She has developed and delivered strategies for a variety of complex and high-profile projects including Brisbane's New Runway, Royal Family Visits, International Airline Launches, the 2018 Commonwealth Games and the 2014 G20 Summit. Leoni has also tackled some of the biggest crises of this decade, including directing the airport's 24-7 global media response for environmental contamination issues, extreme weather disruptions, aviation incidents and the COVID-19 pandemic. Leonie Van Deven, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Leonie, can you tell the listeners a little bit about your current role in the organization you run?
1: I am actually a director of Stormbird's Organisational Strategies, and we are a specialist um, crisis response and preparation agency. Um, Basically, we would love to get into the minds of leaders within organisations to make them aware of how important it is to be prepared for crisis so that you can actually um, find opportunity in crisis.
0: And how did you get to a position where you were interested in crisis management, crisis communications?
1: It was all actually very accidental. I have spent 20 years, my previous 20 years, in the aviation industry, 10 years with an airline and 10 years with an airport. And um, my degree is in um, Bachelor of Arts Public Relations. I ended up obviously in the media team. And working in aviation is an incredibly crisis rich environment Um, and we're talking, you know, obviously from major, major incidents through to, um, you know, reputational um, things as well and there's a huge uh, focus from um, local, national, international media, the community, government Um, and so I just found that I actually had a skill in responding during crisis. And those skills include remaining quite calm, being able to have rational and logical thought during that process. And I just developed my skill over 20 years. I don't think it's something that comes easily. Um, It's not for everyone, but I found my strength in that. And um, I recently finished up as a lot of people did in the industry um, with the airport in August last year, I took a voluntary redundancy. I had been on call 24 seven for crisis um, and media response um, for 20 years. So I thought it was time to um, change a little bit of my lifestyle and 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 also share my expertise outside of the business um, with companies large and small that could um, use my front line experience and it was very frontline.
0: So we're going to talk about that today, the idea of leading through a crisis and all the different moving parts that, that make up that job. Can you explain to the audience what your experience is describing how it is that you practice leading through a crisis?
1: More often than not, I suppose it's like writing a bicycle you do have to get onto it to really experience what it's like it is absolutely essential absolutely essential but of course you can never um, practice like the real thing um, so my experience of leading through a crisis has developed over 20 years when you're in a crisis it's like a roller coaster for you you, you know you you experience a range of emotions at unpredictable times as the crisis evolves um, everything's amplified time speeds up, you forget to eat or drink, sleep, take toilet breaks. Um, it's like your bodily functions just take a second priority. Um, at times, you, you know, you suffer complete mind blocks, even down to fuzzy sight and moments of sheer panic. It, it's it's not, not pleasant, you know, as your body attempts to balance the noise and make sense of the chaos. Um, sleep deprivation is real and um, you're exhausted, but yet it's impossible to sleep. And so not everyone's suited to performing well.
0: No, <laughs> it sounds like being in some sort of special operations overseas for the army or something.
1: Yeah, and and you do look at our frontline responders, people who are in ERs and in armies, and these people are highly specialised in, um, you know, performing under incredibly stressful situations. That's what they're trained to do, but somebody who's sitting in, a, in in an office in the city somewhere generally doesn't have exposure to that, so it can be incredibly um, overwhelming. And I've seen excellent leaders, leaders who every other day of the week um, you would look up to and, and you're proud to work for and support. And I've seen them struggle and crumble under the strain. So, and there's a number of reasons for that. Um, either they've not experienced it or they've, they've not prepared for it. And <laughs> They're not practiced for it either. So
0: um, so how do you prepare for leading through a crisis? What sort of a, an approach might you take?
1: You have to prepare. You can't sit there with blinkers on and and think it's never going to happen to me because it it is, the likelihood is it is going to happen um, to you or your business. I mean we all have personal crises um, in our lives too um, that we have to deal with every day. So I suppose in a way depending on how you deal with your personal crises um, can almost inform how you might deal with a a professional or or company crisis. So you need to just understand what you don't know You need to know, you need to, as a leader, you need to recognise where your weaknesses are and you need to fill those weaknesses with resources that know how to do that. That doesn't make you a bad leader or or an inexperienced leader. That makes you a very, very smart leader in doing that. So, yeah, without, without even experiencing crisis, it would be a really good exercise to actually sit down, take some time to actually look at potential crises. What could potentially impact your business? And then work strategies around those crises. So if and when they ever happen, hopefully they never do. You actually have some knowledge um, because you've done a little bit of work in that space that you can pull from. You can you know, you've thought about it. You're not surprised by it. I hate surprises and in the businesses that I've worked in um, you often find that crisis could have been I I suppose nipped in the bud weeks before except somebody didn't pass on information or having a difficulty so if I had known six weeks prior the the impact of the crisis would have been a lot less because we'd had that time to think about it so I suppose that's what I'm trying to explain In think about what situations you could be in and think about possible um, responses to that and what resources you need.
0: So you're saying you, you hate surprises, which is quite a thing to say for someone who's worked in crisis for the last 20 years. And yet, it's about preparing for potential crises.
1: Absolutely. And I, as I said, I sort of, it was by accident, I fell into this. And of course, I started my career and I was a junior in in a team, in a a comms team. And when a crisis came about, I realised that our leadership didn't, well, hadn't put in place, weren't prepared for certain crises, And I could see the chaos and I could see the stress um, and I could see the dysfunction within the team. And I still had to do my frontline job of answering the phones for media and, you know, trying to tell them nothing. (laughs) <laughs> which, make, which makes me feel uncomfortable. You know, it makes the company look incompetent and in that we don't know what's going on um, and things as well because the actual communication lines between the, the crisis and what was happening at the leadership and strategic level wasn't filtering down to the operations. And so I suppose I got more interested in preparation to save myself to stop me panicking um, when I was thrown into a situation where I was out of my depth and I had no support from my leaders because they were out of their depth. Um, And I didn't like feeling out of control with my destiny. So that's when I started asking a lot of questions, particularly when I um, moved into more senior positions and even into new companies. I just knew as a frontline spokesperson that eventually I'd be on the phone to media being asked the hard questions. And it was my reputation on the line as well as the companies. So it was just important that I had to be annoyingly proactive in this space and actually write the communication plans that were never there so that I had comfort that I knew what I was doing at the very least.
0: When it comes to crisis and communications, what? how do you reframe a crisis? How do you Communicate to well, I guess the media, but also your employees and maybe even your stakeholders. This crisis.
1: Um, There's different stages of a crisis. Obviously, you've got when the crisis, and particularly if it's a it's a crisis that involves you know fatality or injury um, to people. Your first thought, particularly, and of course the media ringing, and, and this may shock a few of the people on the podcast. You've got 30 seconds to respond. To a crisis event, particularly one that involves um, injury or fatality, or, or, or potential injury or fatality—a fire, an explosion, or, or so. Thirty seconds. Thirty seconds. If you don't, if you have not put out a holding statement in those thirty seconds, you can guarantee the media's going to find somebody who's going to do that for you. Wow! And that's when you lose credibility. As so,
0: so you're you're saying that after an incident has occurred. The media are going to find out about it that quickly that you need to be prepared to talk to them thirty seconds after the incident. Yes.
1: Yep. Wow. In in the US, and I've studied a lot. it's It's a really good thing, particularly within the industry you're in, is to actually go and study crisis within your industry. Go and have a look at the news reports, and there's a lot of there's a lot of content out there because you know the news is just. It's, it's not the 24-hour cycle anymore. It's a 24-minute cycle. You know, every half hour you've got news up. And, of course, social media is is every second, Twitter. And there was a an air crash in America and uh, it, it's, um, there was a case study done on it that I read and within, what well, it was about 24 or 30 seconds of the aircraft crash landing in an airfield at an airport, the people escaping the plane People on the plane who walked away without injury were filming it live yes. for social media. Wow. Yeah. And that was picked up by the CNNs and all the big broadcasters. Um, and this is before. And I think that airport actually took, I think the airline, either the airline or the airport, port, took an hour and a half to confirm the aircraft it even crashed. Like that's, you can't deny that. It's on international news, um, so you do need to. And and if you if you're not responding, you don't become the trusted source of information. And that's exactly what you want to be. You want to be in control of the information that is to do with a crisis about your company. And it takes minutes for them to find somebody who's going to get on and speak for you, and usually not very um, positively.
0: Leone, would you be able to share an experience? Be able to walk us through. A crisis where you led an organisation through that crisis to a positive outcome.
1: I'm going to I'm going to um, give you a I think a, a different scenario, um, not a not a, a a crisis like a air crash or things like that, but a reputational one. And this is this is probably more likely to happen to a, a lot of businesses, reputation. And I think a lot of leaders forget that. Uh, reputation the cost of reputational damage can actually be more than the cost of the crisis itself
0: walk me through that
1: yeah so it's really interesting i worked and um uh, i'm not sure how many people will be familiar with this campaign i lived it for two years i was working with brisbane airport and around 2012 uh, the airport obviously the runway is now open they've got a whole new range of of issues now but prior to that time the second runway for Brisbane Airport was going to be built. Now there'd been some delays to this the runway being built due to the GFC Um, and so the actual runway project was delayed for for several years And, and what had happened was actually capacity of the airport was strangled around 2012. And and for a number of reasons this happened. A, obviously increase in, in passengers, but there was also a capacity war between our two major airlines where they were quite literally flying empty planes. Just to keep the slots, you know, and so we there was yeah massive delays at the airport. I'm talking, you know, an hour and a half delays. It was a big problem, and um, it was it was gradual. It was complex. It involved a lot of partners, and it wasn't something the airport could fix quickly by itself or quickly you know there was a number of initiatives in place to find solutions um to try and you know we put in a um a slot capacity so only a certain amount of flights could be scheduled to fly in during peak hours and things like that and um we were trying to fix the problem but really the only solution was a new runway and that new runway wasn't going to be for there for another eight years. Again, we can't we couldn't build a runway overnight. Um and of course building a new runway involved a lot of financial agreements to be done as well. So there was complexity in.
0: So th- this is a complicated problem. It's not one that you can get on the news and explain easily to listeners.
1: No, no, that's exactly right. So it was incredibly complex. And but what was interesting was out of nowhere the Koream which which prior to my time hadn't had a very good working relationship with the previous management of Brisbane Airport. So there was a little bit of um, tension there that I actually wasn't aware about. Um, And so they weren't particularly, there wasn't a a good working relationship on either side there. What happened, what, what I understand is, so around about, so what do we in 2012, the Courier-Mail obviously had their, the executive team obviously had their own agenda and, and they decided that um, creating consumer campaigns may assist in boosting um readership and sales and of course if you can get on the bandwagon of something like the the airport is a massive infrastructure it's a big target it's not going away it impacts a lot of people and they chose us they they chose the airport to launch a consumer campaign and basically they got together all this information in regards to all the issues that we were having and um it hit me out of the blue. I got I got a phone call from a journalist I'd never heard about. I I researched him and found out that he was um, quite a senior um, feature writer, and he was asking me some very very challenging questions. And like in a couple of minutes, you you understand how challenging the situation was. And I remember saying to him, um, you know, what his angle was with this. And he basically, and his his response, his reply was, "I'm going to make you a star." And I'm like, "That's a very, very strange. That's a very, very strange response." And the next day, I ended up on the front page of the Courier Mail with my comments based on um, the delays at the airport. And I thought, "Whoa, this is this is incredibly unusual." You know, it was a really inflammatory headline. The airport had never, you know, it had a really good reputation. It had never had any really bad media in regards to it. So that inflamed. The executive and the board overnight that that had happened and then i realized uh, shortly after that they launched a social media campaign with the hashtag and late again and it it just ramped up from there i was answering media questions up to 20 or 30 really technical media questions um, nearly every every day from them and there would be an article every day and the bottom line was they didn't care about the difficulties we were having or the complexity or the complications they didn't care if if delays were due to weather. And Actually, surprisingly, during that year we had a lot of bad weather too, <laughs> which con- contributes to that. We had unprecedented growth in flights, the capacity wars, as I've mentioned, between the airlines. Um, it all came down to the flights were delayed, on-time performance was dropping, and Brisbane Airport it's your fault. And they. there was lots of blows they could land on us from all different angles and they did. They went from, we got blamed for every single aircraft delay, no matter what it was. You know, a cyclone in the Pacific, hashtag b late again. International flights, three hours late, hashtag b late again. Baggage not on a carousel, hashtag b late again. Um, you know, an aircraft goes out of service, hashtag b late again. Congestion on the airport roads, it did not end. Now, that campaign <laughs> ran for two years, wow. actually two years before we could commit to getting the uh, the runway built. We'd signed um, finance agreements with the airlines and we could commit to getting it built. In that time, there were 330 media stories. Um, there were 45 million audience circulation. That's how far their stories reached. But what was interesting was 82% of it was coverage by the Korea mail and fourteen um, percent was covered in national media through the Australian. So it was a News Limited campaign, and given the seriousness of what they were accusing us of, it was interesting that no other media outlet strongly supported the Courier Mail's sensational campaign style coverage. Not even the other News Limited mastheads. Mm. So it, the opportunities, though, I suppose, would come down. To, it was so it was horrible. The headlines were so inflammatory. That they even. Went to as much as identifying each of our individual board members and um, analyzing them personally. Um, so it was it was an incredibly exhausting time for me um, and and the executive team. But the opportunities this is it. So reputationally, we took a big hit. We suddenly had uh, community members questioning, you know, whether we were community minded and and um, we had photos of, you know, mums with children and, you know, that had been impacted by the delays and people who had missed operations because it was it was horrible. The op- But the opportunities, the one thing that I learned that actually got through in the end, I actually, and I say to this day and I speak to the executives that were involved with in that and I was saying, I actually said that was a really good thing to go through. It wasn't at the time, horrible at the time. But, but what we learned from, the actually opportunities in the campaign, the career mail Campaign so heavily for the runway to be built that it actually supported, uh, it actually um, overshadowed the people who didn't want the runway built. So they, they almost campaigned for us to build the runway, which had some opponents that didn't want it built. And, you know, so they when the runway opened after t- two years of campaigning, they actually took credit for the runway to be built. So front page news, (laughs) Courier Mail has, through this campaign, built this runway. So later down the track when people are saying this is not good, this is bad, it's very hard for the Courier Mail to come back after a two-year campaign and taking credit for having built it to say this is not a good thing for the community, this is not a good thing for Brisbane, this is not a good thing. And also our board and generally um, our board at that stage and a lot of boards... In this, you sort of made up of older generation people who probably aren't familiar with uh, digital, you know, media, let alone social media campaigns. They learned very, very quickly about social media and the impact of social media. So I actually saw that as very positive. They couldn't dismiss it anymore. It was part of a big campaign that was that was attacking their reputation. So that learning for the board, I think, was very, very valuable. And it was also a lesson in stack hats on stick to your strategy. Don't waver, I had to keep going. We need to stick to this, we need to keep responding. We need to keep giving the information out. It was exhausting, it was repetitive, it was frustrating, it was demoralizing, it was unfair, but we had to stick to it. We couldn't change our strategy and that was one of the biggest things I learned. When the pressure's on, you have to be definitive, you all have to stick together. And also following the campaign, (laughs) The board was very aware of how reputational damage can impact the business. So they happily approved significant budget for campaigns to help rebuild a reputation. It was it was extraordinary. Um, and I think, despite the pain, a very good outcome um, for the airport. In the end, they got the runway built and launched. They've got whole new issues now. Um, but that was an interesting time, and I enjoyed it.
0: So you've got a situation where the courier males run with a narrative which is very easy for them to explain. They have a protagonist in themselves, essentially, or the community of Brisbane, and an antagonist in the airport, and it's very easy for them in a very short uh, phrase to blame you. It's very difficult for you to then come back and explain what those real problems are, that are definitely real reasons and, and I guess excusable reasons for the, for the runway being late, of course. And yet it's far more difficult, it takes far more words for you to explain that than it does for them to paint you as incompetent or, or so forth, as, as you've um, said. But in the end, by having the airport built and a lot of focus, uh, sorry, the runway built and a lot of focus being on that runway that became a success that the Courier-Mail then had to support for you.
1: Yes, that's exactly right. Um, and uh, we were able to, interestingly enough, the journalist who was running that campaign, there was a main journalist in that, we actually became really good friends. People were saying to me, I bet you hate so-and-so. I said, he's an excellent journalist. And we are friends. He's since retired. Um, I think we may even be friends on Facebook. So you develop once you work with somebody. And we I saw it as working. He had a job to do. I had a job to do. And in the end, he was almost over it because the more he spoke with me, the more he understood, the more he understood. And he's like, this is not, you know, this is not making sense anymore.
0: You spoke before about having to stick to a strategy and make sure that your communications are the same and that they're clear all the way through that crisis and that you're not wavering, you're not changing as things change perhaps. How do you do that? How do you have a strong uh, strategy for how you're going to approach communications in a crisis, especially when we've seen of late in the media a lot of change happening through COVID responses, for instance.
1: But again, actually, that's that's a really good thing for people to analyse. The the premiers are getting up every day and, and you know what, they're saying exactly the same thing (laughs) in a different way. So while there is a lot of change, um, they're actually not changing their key message if you really analyse it. With my approach to anything, to be quite honest, is um, don't slam the shutters closed. Never, ever have no comment. Always have a comment. As I said, stack hats on. It's going to hurt. They're going to be throwing some punches. But as long as you can, um, you know, I've always said and I've said to journalists before, happy to take a punch as long as I have a right of reply. And what's interesting too is so important with media relations is, and and particularly during crisis, some companies want to invite the journalists to the cake cutting. Absolutely, they invite them. But when there's a crisis, they close off all communications. That's not how you build trust. Over my 20 years of doing what I've been doing, and particularly with a frontline response to media, who can make or break your reputation, and what other, you know, they are the opinion leaders. I have built trusting relationships with the key journalists and I answer their questions, good, bad or indifference, 24 hours a day. So therefore, I was able to, in a way, influence to a degree their um, line of reporting. And that was my goal with this, this senior journalist was to just be so responsive, pick up my phone every single time not only meet, but get his deadline well before, uh, you know, getting his responses well before, um, invite him in, show him around, you know, just, you know, what, what's the old saying, keep your friends close, your enemies close. Not that I saw him as an enemy. Um, but do that, you know, so stack hats on. You've got to remain professional, open, open and responsive. You can't get defensive. You can't hate somebody for doing their job. You've got to be clear on your messages. You can say the same thing a dozen different ways. So particularly in a crisis when everyone wants information all the time, it's as simple as this. And here is a big tip. <laughs> this is what we know. This is what we don't know. This is what we're doing. this is we want this is what we want you to do. That's it. And you can say that again and again and again. You might give a different, this is what you need to do. or this is you know, and obviously the information that you know and you don't know. honestly, that's the secret to it. So be clear in your messages, never have no comment. Background, brief, brief, brief. And while I was dealing with this journalist day in, day out, in the half an hour I had spare, with I wasn't dealing with him and everything else in the day, I was briefing other journalists. I was actually ringing the Channel 9, Channel 7, Channel 10, the Australians. I was doing that and briefing them. So they knew what was going on, and that's probably, I think, one of the reasons why a lot of other media did not pick up and run with this story because they could see that it it was it was actually not about BAC doing the wrong thing. It was about a community campaign, probably to try and lift sales and readership with that with that masthead. What what was also good was you know to simplify this complex issue. We started putting out even more simple collateral explaining the issues, so that was a really great resource. I'd also pull any errors and omissions and bias up Any if there was something that was reported incorrectly and generally it wasn't the journalist's fault. You've got to remember there are sub-editors and editors behind the scene that can can change the uh, slant of a story just based on a, couple, a removal of a couple of words. So you'd pick them up. Um, another thing I did is I used what I call big guns sparingly, as in my CEO, sparingly. I wasn't going to drop her out for and they asked and asked and asked and asked for her and as soon as you bring out your CEO um, you've made that issue really important really important because the CEO is speaking now so that's also a tactic as well you definitely need to bring them out at sometimes but you don't bring them out for every envelope opening not at all you don't you don't do that you know you just keep your strategic focus what was the long game You know, the the long game for us was to open the runway and, to be quite honest, as I said, the campaign was actually benefiting that goal. Um, You know, celebrate your small wins. I had to... uh, Headlines are inflammatory and I need to remind anyone here who's listening, who who ends up in a senior leadership role, read beyond the headline. There were times when I would uh, have my executive who would be quite distressed about a headline and I'd read the story and I'd go, hey the story's great you know we got our message in they Mm. took a punch but we were able to respond and they go okay so um so yeah so they're, they're the things I did to to just you know stick with the strategy it's the long game you have to keep reminding people that it's the long game
0: that's an excellent piece of advice Leonie and thank you very much for sharing your experience of crisis and communications with the audience today my pleasure Leonie van Dieven, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much. Information about our guests can always be found in the podcast show notes in your podcast app or on the course site. This has been a University of Southern Queensland podcast.